Right now, I'm walking through the ancient streets of the old city, Jerusalem, and it was built upon the foundations of many other cultures from many other times, and it's a lot like our faith. Our faith has come down to us through the stories, the events, and the lives of other people that God has used. And so, in this series, we're inviting you to walk along with us as we look at those ancient foundations for our faith. This series is called Origins. walking right now in a revolutionary place, really. It's where Jesus gave us the great Sermon on the Mount, you know, known as the Beatitudes. It was right here on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Aramos Tapos, a barren place. But his teaching was far from barren. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Roxanne and I recently had the privilege of going to Washington, D.C. for the first time in a very, very long time. And I have to tell you, every time I've been, it happened again when we were there recently, I am absolutely amazed by the city. I think about the the size of the buildings and the quality of the buildings that are made of marble, and there are just one after another, some of them city block big. It's just unbelievable. And then the number of statues and memorials highlighting great victories and those kind of things from our nation, it's amazing. It's overwhelming. And, and it's no accident that Washington, D.C. has that impression and makes that impression. It was built to impress. Washington, D.C. was designed and structured and built to, to declare the power and prosperity of this free nation. In fact, you can't visit Washington, D.C. from anywhere in the world, inside or out, without at least understanding this country, this kingdom, is a big deal. I mean, it's obvious which really then 
fascinates me when I experience where Jesus unfolded his kingdom principles and values. When I, when I look at where Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, the Lord of the universe, where he decided to introduce his kingdom into this world, it blows my mind. Having walked in both places, in fact, I've been in other city capitals around the world, national capitals around the world, and nothing compares to the place that Jesus introduced his kingdom. You saw it in the video, and you see it in the picture behind. It's in a beautiful setting on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, but it's just a barren place. I mean, it, when, you, when you go there, it's called the Mount of Beatitudes, and you go with this great expectation, I'm going to go to the Mount of Beatitudes, it's going to be awesome, and then you get there, and you saw it in the video. I mean, you might have wanted to go until we showed you that there are scorpions there. It is, it is a barren, empty, dry field. It's crazy. And so I ask myself, having been at the power centers around the globe, and then standing there on that barren mountainside, why did Jesus do it this way? Uh, why did Jesus introduce his kingdom to this world in a place that this world devalued so greatly? Because you see, our world does not hold barrenness in high stead. Our world equates barrenness with poverty and meaninglessness and powerlessness. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, introduced his kingdom in a place like this. No marble, no statues, no memorials. And for those of you who say, well, of course there were none back then. Yes, there were. Have you heard of Rome? It was decorated with unbelievable opulence and marble. It was akin to Washington, D.C., declaring the power of Rome. And they had power cities everywhere. In fact, here in the Galilee, very close to where Jesus stood on this mountainside, there was a place known, a region known as the Decapolis. Ten cities of Roman and Greek nature built with the opulence of power and prosperity. But Jesus, the Son of God, didn't introduce his kingdom in one of those places. But here, in a barren place, why? It's because he wasn't introducing a kingdom that we would understand. He wasn't introducing a kingdom that would make sense to us. He was introducing a kingdom that was very different. His kingdom wasn't for the powerful, for the prosperous, for the included. His kingdom announcement wasn't made to impress the stakeholders of the day. His kingdom was meant for everyone. In fact, it's interesting. His kingdom was meant especially for the weak, especially for the poor, and especially for the excluded. His kingdom opened the door to the people who had nothing. You see, Jesus, when he came to announce his kingdom and declare his kingdom, wasn't coming to empower his followers to be greater or richer than others in the kingdom of this world. He, he wasn't coming so that we could be more competitive in the game of life as it was already being played, where we could scrape and crawl over the backs and onto the heads and shoulders of other people and become king of the mountain. That wasn't the kingdom he was producing. His kingdom was a kingdom where he was calling people not to be greater than everyone else, but to be great at serving and greater at sacrificing than anyone or anywhere else. He was coming to introduce us to a different, a revolutionary kingdom. He was coming to introduce us to God's kingdom. And just so you know, God's kingdom is very different than the kingdom of this world. 
Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where he makes the declaration. After John, and this is John the Baptist who was here to herald the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the world, the Lord of God's kingdom. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. That's this region here, the Galilee, all around the Sea of Galilee. And he proclaimed the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe that great news. So Jesus came to introduce a new kingdom. And he went to a very interesting place. Not a power center, but a barren place. If we're going to understand that, then we have to understand the foundation upon which we live. You see, in Jesus' day, as in ours, there are two primary worldviews. Now, we can get into all kinds of philosophical debates, and we can share all kinds of different philosophies, multiple different philosophies that take nuances of one and nuances of another and put together a whole new philosophy. But there are two primary worldviews in Jesus' day and our day. Let's look at the first. The first is the majority worldview. It's the one most people hold, and if they don't declare it with their words, they show it with their life. The first view, me is at the center of the world. The first view people have of this world, the first view that guides their choices and guides their life is the philosophy, the view that I am at the center of the world. Me is at the center of the world. That's a view. It's huge. And it's the majority of you. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. For everyone, this isn't just some people, everyone looks out for his own interests by nature. Everyone begins by having me at the center of their world. That describes the kingdom of this world. You want to know what the problem is in your marketplace setting? The worldview is me at the center of the world. Everybody's scraping and fighting for themselves. Everybody's putting themselves first. The boss, the employees, it's the way it is. You want to know what the problem is in our nation, in our country? The same thing. You want to know what the problem is in your home? The same thing. You know what the problem in your marriage is? Yeah, I know you said I do, I'm for you, but you meant I'm, I do because I'm hoping you're for me. We have this worldview. Everyone fights for their own interests. Me at the center of the world. And that's where Jesus flips everything upside down. That's the second worldview. Jesus comes, and the reason he can come to a barren place and announce the kingdom of God is because he doesn't need statues and memorials and buildings made of, of marble. He doesn't need to show power and prosperity because he brings a message not of barrenness but of fullness. The second worldview, the minority view, is this. God is at the center of the world. The one who created is at the center of the world. Now, that describes the kingdom of God. Now, you've got two very different views. Me at the center of the world, God at the center of the world. It's going to describe different choices. It's going to show out in different ways in our lives. Look at how Jesus introduced this in teaching us to pray. And you need to know... Matthew chapter 5 is just the introduction to the great Sermon on the Mount. And I would encourage you to read chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Matthew. Invest yourself in it all week long. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the principles and values of God's kingdom. Today we'll look at the introduction, the Beatitudes. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, he taught us to pray. And look what he said in verses 9 and 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I think it's interesting that he taught us to pray in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount because he knew how we did pray. 
Not only as a human being did he sit around with other people praying, but he had listened to prayers since the beginning of time when he created them. And he knew how we prayed. I mean, we prayed in God's name, and we prayed God's word, and we prayed in spiritual tones, and some of us even prayed in the voice of God. You know, we talk like this, but then we pray, we go, oh, Heavenly Father. You know, I mean, we, he knows how we pray. And we speak in euphemistic English of the 21st century, but when we pray, man, we all of a sudden are Shakespearean experts, you know? Oh, God, thou art, theest art, and whoever is thou artest, and I amest. And we pray these unbelievable prayers, but you know what he knows about our prayers? Our prayers are generally me at the center of the world. Me at the center of the world. God, keep me safe. Get me a job. Keep my marriage secure. Keep my life good. Keep my family safe. Keep me, keep me, keep me, me at the center of the world. And you said, he said, you, you want to really be a part of the kingdom of God? Then you need to realize you're not God. You're not the center of the universe. You're not the center of the world. Did you know this world could still exist without me? And just so you know, because you're going, yeah, in fact, it might even be better if we could have someone else up there. That'd be great. I get it. But did you know this world could still exist without you? God didn't have to create us for this world to exist, but this world would not exist without him. So he says, this is how you should pray. You're God. You're the one who sits on the throne. You're our father in heaven. You're the one who set apart. You're the one who deserves to be worshipped, obeyed, hallowed be your name. You see, when I put me at the center of my world, I'm acting like I'm God. But if I'm going to be a part of the kingdom of God, I have to acknowledge that he's the one at the center of the world. And then this is how I pray, Jesus says, I'm then supposed to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Because that's not how I normally pray, and that's not how I normally live. And can I be honest? That's not how you normally pray, and that's not how you normally live. We normally say, God, you're great. God, you're good. God, you're awesome. God, you're powerful. Here's what I want. You better do it, or I'll be PO'd. If you're really spiritual, you just say ticked off. But we're, we're asking him to use his power and his ability to do what we want because we put me at the center of the world. And Jesus says, that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to put God at the center. Say, it's not about my kingdom. It's not about what I want. It's not about my will. It's about you. God, you're supposed to be at the center. Jesus taught in introducing his kingdom that it's not about us having a power center and a prosperity center. It's about us devoting ourselves to the true power of the universe. And that's God. That's who it's about. Two worldviews. Me at the center of the world. God at the center of the world. Now, let me kind of pick apart this, this reality so that you and I can relate to it just a little bit better. Interestingly enough, you need to know that most of the religious people in Jesus' day, and by religious people, I'm not talking about religious Hindus or religious Buddhists who were around at the time. I'm not talking about you know, people of all kinds of varying beliefs. I'm talking about the religious people who embraced the writings of the Old Testament scripture at the time, who embraced the one God created all concept, the one who promised that he would send the Messiah. I'm talking about the religious people who claimed God Yahweh as their 
God. Interestingly enough, most of those people, most religious people of Jesus' day, were living according to the principles and values of the world, not of God. Most religious people of Jesus' day were living according to the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of God. Now, that would mess things up, wouldn't it? Now, they said God's name they, they, in the right way, not in the way some of us say it during the week. I mean, they said God's name in the right way. They, they, they prayed prayers. They sang songs. They looked right. They went to the right places. But they were living by the wrong principles and values. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. For context, um, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were wanting to kill Jesus, and they were ultimately successful. And look what verse 18 of Matthew 27 says. For he, Pontius Pilate, he was the Roman governor over Jerusalem, that region of the world. And the religious leaders brought Jesus to him, so he'd put him to death. And it says, for he, Pontius Pilate, knew it was out of envy that they, the religious leaders, had handed Jesus over to him for him to kill. Now, I want you to join with me. I mean, I want you to get vocal. I want you to participate here just for a minute, all right? For he, Pontius Pilate, knew that it was out of what? Envy. Envy. That doesn't sound like a kingdom of God quality. That sounds like a kingdom of man quality, doesn't it? If I'm living for the kingdom of God and I'm living to serve others and to sacrifice for others and I'm living with God at the center, then I'm not living for me to be the greatest, for me to be king of the mountain. And so everything that's going on, I'm not, you know, envious. If God's doing something special in your life, I, I'm putting God at the center of my world and I'm going, he must know what he's doing. Even though I know you don't belong there, you know, I really belong there. He must know what he's doing. So I'm not envious of you, I'm, I'm celebrating it. If I envy what God's doing in your life, what's it say about me? It says that I'm competing with you. It says that I want to be better than you, and I want to be greater than you, and I want more than you. It says that I'm living according to the principles and values of the kingdom of this world, not the kingdom of God. And quite frankly, too often, I see those principles and values that work in my life. Don't you see them in yours? These religious leaders, for envy, delivered Jesus up to death. Why did they envy him? Because the crowds were following him instead of them. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their prosperity. He was a threat to their traditional religious views. And he was ruining their will and their kingdom. And that's what they were devoted to. And when we get envious, we're the same way. But it just wasn't those bad religious leaders. It was also the good disciples. You know, we read about the, the disciples following Jesus. They left all their work in order to follow Jesus. Weren't they great? But look what happened to them in Luke chapter 9, verse 46. In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, it says an argument. And once again, I want you to participate with me, okay? I'm warning you ahead of time. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the what? Now, this sounds like a very spiritual discussion, doesn't it? I mean, talking about, you know, remember how Jesus taught him to pray? This is then how you should be. Our Father in heaven, great is your name. Great is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What you want to happen, man, we're all for that. What are they arguing about? Not whether or not God was great or how great he was. They were arguing about which one of them were greatest. Are they living by the principles of the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? It's obvious. And these were the good guys. And so I'm telling you, in Jesus' day, the religious people were often living for the wrong principles as they sang the right songs, spoke the right words, went to the right places. Do you think the same thing might be going on today? 
Do you think the same thing might be going on in our lives? Which takes me to the second thought I want to share with you about this whole deal. The truth is, all human beings are by nature driven to embrace the principle and values, the principles and values of the world. All human beings are naturally driven to embrace the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of God. We're pre-wired by Adam and Eve and by their fall to be driven to put me at the center of our world. And if I could get less impersonal and more personal for just a minute, instead of saying all human beings, which sounds so um, acceptable, let me say it the right way, all of us. Every single one of us is hardwired to put me at the center of our world, which means others aren't as important. God isn't even as important. By nature, we live by the wrong principles and values. Even when we're saying the name of Jesus, even when we're doing the things of Jesus, we tend to, like the disciples, still do it so that we can prove we're greater than everyone else. We put us at the center instead of God. And can I just remind you, that's what sin is. If you're kind of new to the whole Bible discussion, spiritual conversation deal, sin might not be a very relevant term for you. You might think of sin as being someone who's just a little bit worse than you, you know? <laughs> but sin is really simply putting me at the center of the world, and all of us do it. And all of us have sinned. When we put me at the center of the world, you know what we're saying? I'm God, I'm the point. The universe spins around me. And you know what we do when we put me at the center of the world? We discount the one true God who is at the center of the universe. We dismiss him. We reject him. We demean him. We diminish him. We blaspheme him, which every single one of us has done. You say, I haven't done anything bad in life. I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are, because you have decided that you were more valuable than God himself. It's sin. And even those of us who are following Jesus, who like to point at all the bad things going on in the world and blame all the darkness on other people, even those of us who follow Jesus battle with this on a daily basis. I have not had the day where I haven't had to battle between me at the center of the world and God at the center of the world. I never face one choice in life where I don't have to intentionally say no to me and intentionally say yes to God because if I don't fight that battle, I automatically say yes to me. I make my leadership about me. I make my choices about me. I make my loves about me. I make my dreams about me. And you do the same thing. And the sad thing is that in our day, like in Jesus' day, the majority of the religious people worshiping the right God, using the right truths are living according to the me at the center of the worldview instead of the God at the center of the worldview. No wonder this world is so messed up. No wonder we're so messed up. Look at how the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians 5.15. It says, and Jesus died for all. His kingdom isn't for the select few. It's for all. And then he says, he died so that those who live should no longer have to live for themselves but could live for him no longer have to live by the worldview that puts them at the center where they're the God, but instead they could live for him. They could put God at the center. And who is that God? The one who died for them and was raised again. You see, often 
we fight a battle we don't have to fight anymore. He says that if we really have been transformed by his death, by his cross, we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we can live for him. We no longer have to live for me, but we can live for him. And yet, if you'd be honest with me just for a little bit, don't we on a daily basis more often live for me, for ourselves, than we do for him? Right? But not Jesus. Not Jesus. The religious leaders, me at the center, us, me at the center, but not Jesus. Jesus always lived by the principles and values of God's kingdom, always. The Bible says that no one could ever find any fault with Jesus, that he never sinned, never. There was no offense that he committed, none. You know why? Because there was never a moment, there was never a choice, there was never a step, there was never a circumstance in his life where he did not do it with God at the center. He was never at the center. You say, I thought he was God. He was, is, and always will be God. But when he became human, he set aside the power of his divinity and walked strictly in his humanity. And in his humanity, God, the Father, was always at the center. So every choice was right. Every action was right. Every behavior was right. There were times in his life, times I can relate to, to a degree, where he was treated unjustly, where he was rejected out of hand in a way that wasn't appropriate, where he was dismissed and demeaned, tore apart and abused. And in moments like that in my life, quite frankly, if I'm really, really honest, I can justify and rationalize wrong behavior on my part to get the right outcome. Do you ever do that? Yeah, because we live by the standards of the kingdom of this world. But Jesus never did. Even at those times where he could have justified using his power and manipulating the right outcomes in the wrong way, he didn't do it. In Luke 22, verse 42, where they were beating him and going to kill him and going to nail him to a cross, look at how he approached that moment. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. I love the first part of that prayer because I can relate to it. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. You know what that means? He wasn't looking forward to the cross. He wasn't looking forward to all that was going to happen, all the darkness was going to be thrown. He says, man, God, if you could, like, come up with a different plan, that'd be awesome. Awesome. Boy, I can relate to that. But I can't relate to the second part of his prayer. Because when I'm saying, you know... God, it'd be really great if you'd take this context from me. I don't want to be without a job. I don't want my relationships to be broken. I don't want my dreams to be deflated and not real. And I, I don't want goals to be, you know, overcome. I don't, I, I, I don't want what's happening to me. Boy, if you could take it away, that'd be great. Then the next part of my prayer is, and you better do this because it's, you know, what I want. Now, I don't say those words. I'm not an idiot. But I play child psychology with God, and so do you. You know, I've been faithful to you. I've gone to Northridge once, twice this year and listened to that guy. I read my Bible once when I was 12. You owe me. I threw a nickel in that offering basket. You better bless me. You know, what we do is we, we take the things that we've done. By the way, in case you didn't notice, that was a little bit of sarcasm. Just a little bit, not a lot. But we play manipulation with God, child psychology with God, because we're trying to get him to do what we want. Why? Because our view of the world is that we're at the center. 
But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus says, you know, I'm not liking what's coming. I don't really like what I'm about to experience. If you could take this cup from me, that'd be great. But then he said this, nevertheless, it's not about me. It's about you. It's not about what I want. It's about what you want. It's not about my kingdom. It's about your kingdom. It's your will, not mine. So if this is the way it has to be, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do it. Do you know what that tells us about Jesus? God was always at the center of his world. Do you know why Jesus experienced the life of fullness that he ultimately experienced and why he was exalted to the highest place and will be for eternity? Because Jesus is the only one who ever lived with God always at the center. Do you know why Jesus had to come to this barren place to introduce God's kingdom? Because that's the place all of us have chosen to live, in the place of barrenness. Though created for fullness in God, all we experience is emptiness and barrenness. With God at the center, it can all change. And that's what he came to give us. But too many of us are bringing God into our lives, but we're keeping me at the center. No wonder we're not experiencing any difference. You say, look, I've been going to church. I've been reading the Bible. I've been quoting these verses. I've been doing this different stuff. I've been giving. I've been doing And nothing's changing. That's because you haven't yet changed. You're just using Jesus to get what you want instead of giving all you want to Jesus. The difference between the two kingdoms. Here's the truth I want to give you this weekend. Just so you know, that was just the introduction. I'm going to make this service worth the drive. <laughs> Here's the truth. The principles and values of God's kingdom and this world. Both kingdoms have principles and values. The principles and values of God's kingdom and this world are diametrically opposed. Opposites antithetical. And here's what really smacks me regarding that truth. I'm trying to live for God in the same way I lived for the world. And you can't do it. You can't be taking the same path and expect to be getting to a different place. If you're going to go from experiencing the kingdom of this world and the darkness and the emptiness and the barrenness of it to experiencing the kingdom of God and the fullness and the fruitfulness of it, you can't keep doing the same things. And yet I do, and so do you. Because we add Jesus to the kingdom of this world instead of adding ourselves to the kingdom of God. In the Beatitudes, which happened on this mount in that dry and barren area, in the Beatitudes, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents the heart, the heart of God's kingdom. He reveals the inner qualities of the people who truly are living out God's kingdom. He, in the Beatitudes, shows us how different those living for God's kingdom are from those living for this world's kingdom. He reveals the different strategy for living that is found in God's kingdom. And here's what we find. It's revolutionary. It's antithetical to this world. I just want to read it to you, and you're in the setting. He's not in the power centers of the world. He's in this Aramis Tapas place, this barren place. And here's what he says, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed. That word is for fullness and satisfaction and contentment. Everything we long for, for personal fullness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the weak, the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and long for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for there's the ones that will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, you know, the clean within, for they're the ones that will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because they're living God's way, by God's principles and values, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. I'm going to tell you that that's got so much in it. So much. I hope that you'll stake out in that passage this week and let God do things in your life. But let me just share two thoughts, just two thoughts. The first that I get out of that passage is that God's kingdom is not for the few, but for everyone. God's kingdom is not for the few, the rich, the powerful, the special selected, the ones who had the right friends in all the right places. No, God's kingdom is not for the few, but for everyone. You know why that means so much to me? I know what it's like to be excluded. I know what it's like to be on the outside. I know what it's like not to be experiencing life as others experience it. And I know this. There's no way I could experience the life that God designed for me because I blew that long ago. Long ago. But you know what this tells me? It's not for the select few. It's for everyone, which means it's not for those people over there. It's for me. And as a human being who can really relate to your experiences and as a pastor who gets to know a little bit more about the experiences of many, I know many of us here, in spite of the fact that we clean up well and we put on the perception that all is well, many of us feel like there's no way God could love me. There's no way he could include me. There's no way I could be a child of God. There's no way he could bless me. There's no way I could experience the best of God because I'm not the best of humankind. But here's what the kingdom of God that Jesus offered on this mount says. It's for you. It's for you. That's meaningful to me. There's another thought that's really, really important to me here. God's kingdom is revolutionary. God's kingdom is revolutionary. God's kingdom shines a spotlight on the darkness of our world. I mean, Jesus in positive teaching is also doing some negative teaching. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, they're the ones that get the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying? You want to know why you're living a life of barrenness instead of a life of blessing? You want to know why? Because you're living based upon your own ego and your own arrogance, thinking that you can do it on your own, thinking that you don't need God or anyone else. No wonder you're messing up. Those are the principles and values of the kingdom of this world. But God's kingdom says, no, blessed are those who know they're poor, who know they're weak, who know they're desperate, who know they have nothing to offer God. This world is messed up because most of us haven't yet realized how messed up we are. I love being with groups of people who are talking about how messed up this world is as if it's all other people's fault. <laughs> it's your fault. I live in the church world a little bit, you know, and I love church people. It's like they act as if the world's messed up because of those people out there. I know you. 
It's messed up because of you people in here. We're all a part of the problem. But we don't know it. And until we come to the place where we realize we're the problem, we're the ones impoverished in soul, we're the ones that have no capacity to know God on our own, we're the ones who are undeserving, we're the ones who created the darkness in our families and in our world, until we come to that place, we will never know God's blessing, we'll always know barrenness. That's what the Beatitudes tell us. In fact, when he gives these Beatitudes, what he's simply showing us is that the world is upside down, but he came to turn it right side up. And it's not going to happen among the powerful and the prosperous. It's going to happen among the excluded, the weak, and the powerless. In fact, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven than anyone else. Why? Because rich people are excluded? No, the kingdom is for everyone. But it's harder for rich people to realize how poor and impoverished and incapable they are. And so they have a hard time desperately needing God. I think it's an American problem because most of us are prosperous in worldly terms. Let, let's tear apart the revolutionary principles of God's kingdom. I just, a couple. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, those who know they have no ability to please God, that they have poverty of soul and they have to depend on God. Blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, who recognize and grieve over their own desperate needs and it motivates them to turn to God as the only solution and they are desperate as they recognize the needs of this world and they'll do anything to turn others to God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, yes, the truly humble and the truly gentle because they know they don't deserve anything so why would they be harsh to others? Look at James 4, 6. God puts it in clarity. He gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I've seen so much arrogance even among those who proclaim to be Christ followers. I've experienced so much personal ego that gets in the way of me being a true Christ follower that it's just incalculable that we keep living by the rules of the kingdom of this world thinking that we're going to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. If you're experiencing barrenness, barrenness it's because you're living a life of barrenness. A life where you're devoted to me at the center instead of God at the center. And it's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's like if I put me at the center, I might be fruitful. It doesn't work. If I put God at the center, I will be fruitful. Then it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those whose greatest longings in the world, greatest passions in the world are spiritual. They're motivated to seek God. Well, that doesn't come naturally. I mean, did you pop into this world going, I want Jesus? I don't think so. In fact, God says no. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. There is no one by nature, righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God's truth, no one. There is no one who on their own seeks God, no one. There's no room for arrogance. And yet very often, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, judge others, point out others, why aren't they following, why aren't they? The only reason I'm following Jesus is because God saw fit to introduce himself to me and transform my heart. I didn't bring anything to him, he brought everything to me. And the same is going to be true with you. 
Blessed are the merciful who extend mercy to others because they've received mercy. I have found very often among spiritual people less mercy than in the world. And yet they're the ones that have received mercy? No. No wonder we're living barren lives. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who are inwardly clean because of God's forgiveness and grace. Very often it's the opposite of me. Here's the truth about us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what I'm saying? Every single one of us has put me at the center of our world and thrown God to the street. And what's really sad is that I still do it sometimes, don't you? I've often thought that the perfect tattoo, I don't have a tattoo yet. But I've often thought that the perfect tattoo, you know, people use their chest for like eagles and things, like that really represents who you are. Okay, maybe. I've often thought that the perfect tattoo on my chest would be, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so that I'd never forget who I really was. I'm a nobody whom the great somebody came to love, and so are you. That's so different from the kingdom of this world. We're all just trying to be somebodies. But when you give up trying to be a somebody that you'll never be and put the great somebody of the universe at the center of your world, all of a sudden, you find the value that you were created for. That's what life is about. won't be clapping in a half hour when I'm still going. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers. I've never been called one of those. You know, they make peace with others. They make peace in the world. Do you know who those people are? Peacemakers are the people who are at peace with their, themselves because they're at peace with God. I can't tell you how seldom that's true of me. And because I see you, it's got to be very seldom for you, too, because usually we're pressing for our agenda. We're in conflict instead of being peacemakers. You see, it's easy to be a peacemaker when God's at the center of the world. It's impossible to be a peacemaker when you're at the center of the world. Blessed are the persecuted. That doesn't even make sense. Blessed are the persecuted? Really? Yeah, because here's the sad reality. As Jesus was hated by those in the world, so we who follow Jesus will be hated by those in the world. Think, think about this. Jesus was hated because he lived by a set of different principles and values. And if we're really living by those principles and values, we'll be hated too. But we'll be blessed. Because instead of being barren and liked, we'll be blessed and loved, and it's the world we're all looking for. There are two different worldviews, two different kingdoms, me at the center, God at the center. Now, imagine what would happen if we, those of us who follow Jesus, really lived according to the principles and values of Jesus. Imagine if we really lived by the principles and values of God's kingdom, how the world would be different. But the truth is, I'm 
I'm asking you to imagine something that you don't have to imagine because Jesus told us what would happen. In the midst of this great Sermon on the Mount, just a couple of verses after the Beatitudes, look what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He says, when you live by my principles and values, when you live by my kingdom standards, you become the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You know what Jesus says? Man, when you really live by kingdom principles and values, it's revolutionary. The darkness of our world turns to light. When you live by kingdom values, the darkness in your marriage can turn to the light. The darkness in your families can turn to the light. The darkness in your communities can turn to the light. The darkness in your world can turn to the light. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the darkness of this world keeps getting darker and darker and darker all the while people are proclaiming to be following Jesus. It's a lot like it was in Jesus' day where people are making the claim but living by the same old principles and values. And I want to see Jesus turn Brad, who's upside down, right side up, and I want others to join me. You know what would happen if we started living the kingdom values? I'll tell you what would happen. We'd wake the world up to Jesus. We'd wake them up to Jesus. Now, everybody wouldn't love Jesus. When Jesus woke the world up to himself, not everyone loved him. But they had to wake up to his reality and do something about it. And if we lived these values, we'd wake the world up to Jesus because we couldn't help but show them his love. We couldn't help but tell them his truth, and we couldn't help but involve them. We'd stop shutting them out, judging them, and competing against them, and we would start involving them in his kingdom. We'd be fulfilling our mission in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our world. It'd be revolutionary. And here, here's the question. And this is very personal, but I need you to ask it. Ask yourself, what's my worldview? What's my worldview? I'm a Christian. I go to Northridge. I'm a Jesus follower. I read my Bible once. I give. I volunteer. Great. What's your worldview? Are you living for the kingdom of me or the kingdom of God? When you give, are you giving so God will give to you, or are you giving because God is worthy of your generosity? When you serve, are you serving so that, you know, God will give you a job, or God will do this, or God will show up, and God will let you do this, or are you serving because God is worthy of your service? Are you living for the kingdom of me, or are you living for the kingdom of God? And, and I want you to know, our natural response, at least for most of us, mine, is what I desire to be true. So if you come to me and you say, hey, Brad, are you living for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of me? I, it's about the kingdom of God, baby. Because that's what I want. By the way, doesn't it sound terrible to say kingdom of me? Who wants to say yes to that? Oh, no, I'm living for the kingdom of me. That just sounds bad. So we're going we're gonna to say the other thing. It's that other thing. If you're an atheist, you'd probably say, well, it can't be the kingdom of me, so it's probably that kingdom of God thing, even though I don't believe in him. You know, because it's like, bad. But the truth isn't what we desire. The truth is who we are. Look at how Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 through 21. A good tree, a kingdom of God tree, cannot bear bad fruit, kingdom of this world fruit. A bad tree cannot bear 
good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire because it's only temporary. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. And then look what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who calls me king, not everyone who says that God is at the center of their world will even enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who actually does the will of my Father who's in heaven. I think we have a lot of people proclaiming to be a good tree who are producing bad fruit. And sometimes I'm that tree. How about you? I think there are a lot of times I'm singing about the kingdom of God, but I'm living for the kingdom of me. How about you? And when I am, I'm living in barrenness instead of blessing. And the same is true with you. It's not God's problem. It's our problem. We call him king, but we sit on the throne. So let me just share. There are so many applications to this, but let me just share two. And then for those of you who are already, you know, pre-starting your car from in here and it's already running and all that stuff, just for those of you, you need to know that when I'm done, we're actually going to go into just a moment of worship that I think God can use in a transformative way. It's going to be a great way to end the service. But if we're going to live God's kingdom, there are two truths I want you to see. Here's the first one. If we're going to live for God's kingdom, not the kingdom of me, but the kingdom of God, we must be defined by the cross. We have to be defined by the cross. Look at how Galatians 6.14 says it. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never find pride in anything except the cross of Lord Jesus Christ. May I never think I'm anybody apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world, the kingdom of this world, has been crucified to me. I've overcome it and I to the world. You go, I... I don't get it. Well, here's the deal. All of us were born into the kingdom of me, and all of us are driven to embrace the kingdom of me, and there's only one way to experience the kingdom of God, and that's through the cross. The kingdom of me is a place of barrenness, which is why Jesus came to this barren place to introduce his kingdom. He had to come to where the people were. But Jesus never experienced barrenness but, barrenness, but only blessing because Jesus always lived with God at the center of his life. But then the death on the cross. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. Jesus, who never deserved death, died in our place so that through his resurrection, we could then walk from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God. There's only one way to the life of blessing from the life of barrenness, and that's through the cross. It's not through religion. It's not by coming to Northridge. It's not by doing a bunch of spiritual stuff. It's through the cross. Have you been over it? Have you been through it? Are you defined by it? If not, that's your starting place. And so before I give you the last principle and we move on to worship, I'm going to ask if you'd bow with me in a word of prayer. If you're watching online, I just encourage you just to engage this moment because until we allow the cross to define us, we never go from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God. If you're ready to take that step, make my words yours in this prayer. Just say to God, God, I've been living with me at the center. I've sinned against you. But right now, by choice, I'm asking you to be the center of my life. I don't deserve it. But Jesus, you died in my place to forgive me and rose again. And I'm claiming your forgiveness in Jesus' name.
amen. If you just prayed with me, I, I, it's the greatest thing you've ever done, ever. And I, if you're in one of our live settings, I just encourage you, please let me know. I mean, I want to celebrate it. We put together a letter that can help you take next steps in your relationship with God, but we have to know. In the program you, you were handed when you came in, it's this little connection card. You just take it out, fill it out. Check that circle that says you prayed with me just now. And then as you leave, there are boxes at every exit. Throw it in there and we'll send you this letter and we'll celebrate with what's going on in your life. And for those of you watching online, just hit the what next button. We'll do the same for you. Here's the last thing. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they just lord it over other people. And the people who have positions of power in, you know, that world, Exercise authority, not for people, not on behalf of people, but over them. Simply, in the kingdom of this world, it's all about getting other people to serve us, for us being over them. But then Jesus says these four words, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as is true of me. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We must be defined by the cross if we're going to be in the kingdom of God, but we also must be defined by serving. We must be defined by serving. It's an awesome thing that people volunteer, that people volunteer in hospitals, that people volunteer for the Red Cross, that people volunteer for community watches, that people volunteer at church, and I'm so thankful for people who volunteer. That's awesome, but let me just tell you something. Please listen. I'm grateful for volunteers. But being a part of the kingdom of God isn't a call to be a volunteer. Being a part of the kingdom of God is a call to be defined by serving. Are you defined by serving? Or are you defined by being served? One of the problems I find in the church of Jesus Christ is that people who call themselves Christ followers are defined by being served and aren't defined by serving. What's true of you? The question, are you living for the kingdom of me or the kingdom of God? Are you living a life of barrenness or a life of blessing? There's only one way to make the switch, and that's by saying, Jesus, my heart, which has been devoted to me, I'm now giving to you. Here's my heart. There are a lot of things you could do in this moment, including leave, but I encourage you to take this moment as we worship to consider your heart and to hand it to him and to live with the right view, the one that takes you from barrenness to blessing. Say, here's my heart. Thanks.